This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. We're going to switch gears. A lot of talk about the Jets so far. Now we're going to talk some Giants. And Gary Myers has been covering the NFL uh, for a long time. He has a new book out called Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. Gary's written many books on the NFL, including the Times bestseller Brady versus Manning. And his new one is newly released, and he's going to spend some time talking about it today. So, Gary, pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, Pat. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Uh, looking forward to talking to you about this. I, I read it a couple of months back. Um, it's, it's a powerful book. Look, I mean, it's a team remembered very fondly, and it's interesting. On the TV right now, they're showing the old-timers day ceremony of the 1998 Yankees. And, you know, in, in my lifetime, you think of the most dominant teams in New York. The 1986 Giants are certainly on that list. But as far as the 86 Giants go, Gary, I mean, your book, it paints a picture that most of the public wasn't aware of. So, you know, first and foremost, what was your main reason uh, for writing this book? Well, you know, the first five books I had written really had nothing to do with New York. And I, I really wanted to do a book that uh, focuses, focused on a New York uh, issue or a New York team. And I, I think one of the biggest issues in the NFL that's come up in the last decade for sure is, players' lives after football. CTE has really put a focus on it, but there's so many other things besides CTE these guys have to worry about because they played such a violent sport. So uh, I wanted to do a book about life after football. I was considering different ways of approaching it, and I just came up with the idea of just focusing on the 86 Giants because they were the age group that I wanted to write about. They obviously um, were incredibly popular, probably the most iconic of the Giants' four Super Bowl championship teams. Had lots of big names that I knew had great backstories, and then I figured I would learn more. So I kind of put the two together, the idea of doing a book about life after football and wanting to do a New York book, and um, I think the end result is pretty good. You know, Gary, you, you've been going out to games at the Meadowlands for years, and you know, all the fans that go out there. And it's an experience for the fans, the tailgating, watching the games before and after the games. And then, you know, you look down on the field and, and these guys are heroes and they're gladiators uh, and any other label that you want to put on them. But really what your book does, it I, I think after people watch them play football for three hours and they enjoy that, they go home and they go on to their other lives. I don't know how much time they spend thinking about what comes of these players, you know, after the game, after the career is over. But your book really, really does shine a light on what happens when the football game ends. Yeah, and Pat, what, what I tried to accomplish here is, um, especially after my first few interviews really produced some very compelling stuff, really sad stuff, and I didn't want the book to be 300 pages of this guy is, had memory loss issues. This guy's got a mental health issue. You know, uh, this guy needed two knee replacements. I mean, 300 pages of really, um, you know, tough stories like that. I don't think would be. The, I, it wasn't the way I wanted to approach it. So, and I also didn't want to do a chronological, <laughs> excuse me, recap of the 1986 season because that was done in books right after the Giants won the championship. So the thing that I found really unique about this team is how they became a brotherhood 
uh, by winning that championship together, and that the bonds are still really strong. So I spend a good deal of the book uh, d- uh, explaining how that brotherhood, how that brotherhood was established, just in the locker room, the practical jokes they pulled on each other, the things they did to Parcells, what they thought of Belichick, um, how they rallied around uh, each other um, as they were going through two days in pads in training camp and then, you know, too many days during the season when they were wearing pads and, and Parcells was wearing them out. And they just kind of bonded together during that period, period of time. And what, uh, what has helped sustain it is when you win together, you have something to share for the rest of your lives. And many of these guys have remained in the, in the metropolitan area. So uh, they, they see each other a lot, you know, card shows and, and things of that nature. And then at reunions and they have a captain in, in Harry Carson who considers himself captain for life. And if anybody's in trouble, whether it's a financial tr- problem or a health issue, they get a text chain going and, and they rally and support their teammate. And maybe that happens with other teams. I don't know. I've been around a lot of championship teams in the 40 years that I've covered the league. And to me, this what's happened with the 86 Giants is really, really unique. Yeah, you mentioned that bond and you mentioned Harry Carson, uh, Gary. And, and he's a central figure of of your book. And he was a central figure on that team. And, and yeah, as you do explain, you know, he, he was the captain then. He, he still acts as if he holds that role today. He still acts as the team captain today uh, in many ways. W- what is his influence on the group of guys that played on the 86 Giants all these years later? I think he's a guy that people turn to when they need some advice. And it's, it, you know what? What's really interesting, and Harry told me a bunch of stories, it's not only players in the Giants. But Harry was so well-respected around the league that players who he never played with from different generations call him and, and ask him for life advice. And, you know, Harry has embraced that role. I mean, he might be the, like the captain of the alumni group, if there was such a thing, of anybody who's ever played the game because of just the type of person he is, that he's very giving of his time, uh, very happy to let other, others benefit from his experience. And and he's been through just about everything. So um, I, I think he's I think he's just a tremendous person. I've known him since 1978. So I go way, way back with him. And uh, Harry's just a great guy. Our guest is Gary Myers, longtime NFL writer. He uh, has a new book out, Once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football. You know, Gary, you have been around the league for decades. You mentioned how long you go back with Harry Carson and others. I'm curious, through all of the interviews you did for this book, is is there anything that you learned from writing this book that was eye-opening to even you? Regarding Parcells or just? Anybody in general? Just um, anything, yeah, anything that you learned in any of the interviews? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have kind of told some people, and Pat, you haven't read the book, you know there's five players in the book who went on the record with me and, and said that things had gotten so bad for them that they were contemplating suicide. 
And in most cases, it was as a result of things that happened during a football career that, you know, 30 years later, we're catching up with them and, and put them in such a spot mentally, such a dark place that they actually were thinking about it. And, you know, just fortunately, they all came out, you know, the other side of that, so to speak, and, and got help. And whether it was, you know, going to talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything the league has provided or just getting the medication that they needed, but they're all doing much, much better today. And, um, I mean, that, that, that's the part that really surprised me is that there, there are things that are going on in these guys' lives that, and I know a lot of them, a lot of the guys really well, but things I wasn't aware of. And, um, not only are they dealing with the natural things that you have to overcome the challenges you have to deal with as you get older, just because, you know, like everybody does, but then when you throw on top of that, the things that, crop up years later physically and mentally because you played a high-speed collision sport. And nobody escapes this game unscathed except maybe the kicker and the punter. Um, and even even they, if they have to make a tackle on a long return, you know, I've, I've seen, and I'm sure everybody's seen some of those guys get hurt. So um, it's, a, it's a really difficult game to play. And uh, in almost every case, there's a price to be paid as these guys get older. And, and that's what I wanted to bring across in the book. I mean, it's not meant to everybody, anybody say, well, you know, they don't have to play it if they don't want to. Oh, but this is, this is what they were good at. This was their way to provide for their family. And there's just, a, you know, like I said, a really big price to pay for it. Um, and to some guys... Um, you know, more than others. You know, obviously, um, Gary, the, the face of that team was Lawrence Taylor. I mean, he was a defensive-minded team, and he was the, the best player on the Giants' defense, the most well-known player on the team. And, you know, LT's, um, you know, post-career life has been chronicled, um, the ups and downs off the field. You spoke with him for this right. book. It, it, you had trouble connecting with him. I think he he uh, he, he – uh, I was a little late for your appointment from what I remember reading in the book at a golf course. But yeah. <laughs> um, when you were finally able to track down LT, where, where is he now in his life? Well, he looked then, and I've seen him a bunch and he, he retired in 93. So it's, you know, it's 30 years now. Um, I mean, he retired after the 93 season. He looked healthier to me, Pat, than, than I can remember maybe at any point since his first two years in the league. And he definitely was happier than I can remember him since he retired. And I think that you'd hate to think it takes a guy 60 years old to get his stuff together. But I think in, in Lawrence's case, uh, that's what happened. And now there's an excerpt that's running. It's on the daily news website today and it'll be in the paper tomorrow and it's actually the first time I've had a byline in my old newspaper where I worked for 29 years, and I left there in 2018. Um, it seems everybody who's left the Daily News is now freelancing for them, <laughs> which I really didn't have much of an interest in doing. Um, but, I, you know, I did offer them an excerpt to my book, and uh, it's kind of cool being, back, cool being back in the paper. But um, I, 
you know, spent a chapter, you know, just talking about Lawrence and how he, he claims to have changed, that he's set aside the, the LT part of his personality, and now he's just back to being Lawrence because it was LT that always got in trouble. And um, I, I know that um, there's been a lot of th- Now, he claims he hasn't done any drugs since he got out of his last rehab in 1998 and the teammates of his that back that up, which doesn't mean by any means that he hasn't had problems, you know, since that period of time, we all know about the case with the, the prostitution case with the underage girl that, you know, it was just a horrible situation. And, um, one that was very regretful and he's a registered sex offender wherever he lives. So he's in South Florida now. And I mean, inexcusable. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how disgusting that is, but um, he seems to have in the last, say, five, six years, um, really grown up. And he's not the wild guy anymore. Uh, I think he's living a relatively quiet life. Now, listen, I'm hoping he doesn't prove me wrong in the next couple of days and start reading about him again for the wrong reasons. But uh, it's been really quiet with him over the last four or five years. And that's the way he tells me he wants it to stay, that he's happy playing golf. He has an interest in a couple of companies. He makes a lot of appearances just because he's launched Taylor and makes some money that way. And that's how he wants to live his life. Um, but we all know that addicts never get cured. They're just recovering. And that's where he's at. And he's on about 25 years now. If He's telling the truth 25 years since he's last done drugs. Now, I can't account for the drinking and and anything else, but the one thing that I was really happy to see, Pat, is um, when I did meet with him in Florida, he has a buddy that's living down there that drives him around. And so he doesn't take any chances if he's in an event one night and, and drinks and he's, he's got somebody to drive him. Um, which to me, 10 years ago, he never would have done anything like that. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good sign. As far as him missing our appointment, the funny part about it was that morning I was in Florida, which was April of last year. I met with Parcells at his house in the morning, and I had lined up a time to talk to Lawrence after he finished playing that afternoon in Joe Namath's golf tournament. So I'm sitting around waiting for him to finish his round and figuring he's going to be with all the other people having lunch. They were running an auction and I just didn't see him. It was in in a tent and I'm looking and looking and I know his round is over and I don't see him. I figured out well, maybe he went inside to dump off his clubs or whatever. And so I went out to the front of the country club and I said to the valet, I said, did you see Lawrence Taylor come out? He goes, yeah, he went to put his clubs in the car. He said, but everybody's doing that. Nobody's leaving in the clubhouse. So I said, but did you see him come back in? And he goes, I don't recall that. So I had a feeling he left and just forgot, which is what happened. But you called and, him back, though. Uh, he came back, though, right? Yeah, he did. Um, um, Linda Thomas, who uh, was working, works for Joe Namath on these tournaments, um, realized before I did that Lawrence left. And she was looking after me because she knew I came there just to talk to him. And so she got him on the phone and said, you have to come back. Um, 
he came down from New York to talk to you, and you, you can't blow him off like this. Now, I had been in text communication with him to set this up, but the last time I had communicated with him was about a week before, and I just didn't want to bug him by keep reminding him. I figured I would just see him there, and he would remember as soon as you know I went up to him, but the fact that I didn't see him and he left is not something I was counting on. And when he, when he came back, I mean, he was as nice as could be. And the first thing I said to him, I said, you know, Lawrence, I've known you since 1981. And I don't know when the change was, but I'm pretty certain as recently as five, six years ago, you never would have come back <laughs> after they told you that you have to come back. And he said, you're probably right. Yeah, that's, um, that sounds about right. And we had, yeah, we had a great interview and um, he's, he starts off saying, I'll give you 20 minutes. And after about 45 minutes, I said, I don't want to take advantage of you. He goes, no, no, we can keep talking. And we talked for like another 15 minutes and I turned off my tape recorder. And we just sat there for a while. Um, I've always liked him. I have no, um, let's see what's the word I'm looking for. I understand exactly who he is and, and the mistakes he's made in his life and how he's hurt himself and hurt other people, which is more important. Um, but my exposure to him, you know, talking to him in locker rooms and after games and in, and in settings like I was talking to him at the golf course last year has always been very positive. And um, so that that's part of what I judge him by without – by any means, pushing to, to the side all, all the bad stuff he's done in his life. And I'm rooting for him as a person right now because I'd like him to see him stay out of trouble and be happy and just play golf and and make appearances and things like that. I mean, you never want anybody to, to screw up, and I think he has to remind himself every day not to screw up. We're talking about the 1986 Giants, chronicled in Gary Myers' new book, Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. Gary, where can, uh, where, and when can folks pick this book up? Yeah, I mean, it comes out on Tuesday, and I'm really excited about that. Um, so the next couple of days, and then anytime after, um, there's online services, uh, and then it'll be in the bookstore starting on Tuesday. But I want to tell your listeners about a couple of, really cool events uh next thursday the 14th phil sims is going to be joining me to sign books at bookends in ridgewood new jersey at six o'clock to next thursday at six um and we've had a tremendous response to that i expect a really nice uh, group of people to be showing up to to meet phil and, and get the book signed then on the 21st at Miller's Sports Hub, it's between 88th and 89th on 2nd Avenue. I think this is a really cool event. It's at 7 o'clock, and Leonard Marshall and Harry Carson are going to be there signing books. And then at 8.15, the Giants are playing in the Thursday night game mm. at San Francisco. So we're just going to hang out and probably have some dinner and watch the game on the 5,000 televisions or so that are in that bar. And... Um, I'm sure a lot of Giant fans will be there anyhow. But if you know if you're listening to this and you want to come by and buy a book and have Leonard and Harry and myself sign it and then hang out with us and watch the game, I think I think that'll be a fun night. So um, 
Yeah, I think this this book so far has been resonating with a lot of people, and uh, I'm hoping um, that people enjoy it as much as I enjoyed research and writing. The book does go into a lot of detail on the Giants as a team, uh, how they were able to navigate the notorious New York City nightlife during the 1980s and still get back in time for practice the next morning. So there's a good amount of that, Gary. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask about, you mentioned your excerpt in the Daily News this week. You also had an excerpt from the book in the New York Post um, about Mark Bavaro. And, you know, LT was the headliner um, you know, Sims was the quarterback. Obviously, Parcells was the head coach. I always felt that Bavaro, in many ways, epitomized the toughness of that team, which is interesting because it was a defensive-type team, and yet he was an offensive player. But uh, mm-hmm. your excerpt that was in the post this week really detailed how much Bavaro has had a rough go of it, especially in recent years. Yeah, he um, he got a really bad case of long, long COVID. Um that probably went on six or seven months. And as anybody who might have read, first of all, it was really weird for me to have a byline in the New York Post. That's what I thought, too. After 29 years at the Daily News, you know, we did everything to beat each other's brains in. And uh, but I'm, I'm appreciative of the Post for, you know, uh, asking to run an excerpt. But, yeah, the story about Mark is really, really compelling about what long-term COVID did to him and, had him on the edge of really he's one of the guys I was referring to that um, contemplating whether it's worth living or not because of what he believes the COVID um, really went after his brain. The virus attacked his brain and, and he, he was paranoid and, um, and anxiety ridden. He was depressed and it is a, a lot of detail about it, both in the excerpt and then even more, um, in the book, and he didn't really give ch- fans a chance to know him when he played. He, it just wasn't him at the time. He was so quiet and uh, almost. I mean, some of some of the way he handled some of his press conferences were almost funny in in how hard he tried not to answer questions. But he is just a completely different guy now. I sat with him for over two hours in his house and. When I've told some of his teammates that they can't believe it because he never talked for 15 minutes to anybody at a time. But he's very talkative. He's very, very well-spoken. He's thoughtful. I thought he was really smart and and very forthcoming. I, he just didn't hold anything back with me on, uh, on, on these struggles that he's had. And I've had a bunch of people who read that yesterday tell me they were on the verge of tears reading some of the things that Mark said. I mean, it was really bad. So um, I'm, I'm happy for him that he finally kind of fought his way through it. He's on a medication now that's really helped him. He's back to playing golf on a regular basis, which is what he loves to do. And um, I hope he makes it down in this area, you know, for some games this year and gives fans a chance to really see the side of his personality that a lot of people didn't know he even had. I won't spoil the whole book, but it also includes a, a funny anecdote of, of Mark Bavaro and uh, interacting with his head coach when he was trying to make the team as a young rookie uh, in his first training yeah, camp. That <laughs> we might spoil be, that one. <laughs> we're not going to spoil that one because, you know what, I don't want to spoil that one for the readers because it's such a funny story 
that if we tell it on, on the radio right now, Pat, and then people start reading it, they're going to know how it ends. And I, I don't want to do that. Not only because I want people to buy the book, but I want people to be able to read that, that story fresh. Because uh, it really, it, I'll say this. Out of all the training camps I've been to over the last four decades, I'd have to say there's a good chance the story that I tell about Bavaro and Parcells has never happened before in NFL history. <laughs> and let's leave it at that. <laughs> I certainly didn't see it any the way it did. Uh, a couple more with you, Gary. Just kind of overall, after after putting the book together, all of the interviews that you did, and speaking with these football players at this point in their lives, do you get the sense that any of them, if they had it to do over again, would any of them choose a different path? Now, I think Harry Carson's been pretty outspoken that he would get very serious consideration to whether he would play again, and a lot of times he said no. Because Harry could have done a million different things. He was just really good at this. But um, I think what he really wanted to do was be um, like an Air Force pilot or something like that. Um, and I think I remember after his first four or five years in the league, the Giants were losing so much and he was so down about it that he was going to um, – he went into Ray Perkins' office the morning after a game that the Giants had lost in Philadelphia and he was ready to retire right then on the spot. And Perkins talked him out of it, and I think Harry wanted to go uh, fly planes. Um, so I think that um, asking the players, would you do it again? Taylor said, you know, I'd really have to think about it, but maybe not. And then two minutes later, he came back and said, no, you know, football is what made me who I am. And a lot of guys say that. Um, you have to remember especially those who are on the 86 team, that um, it was the highlight. It might have been the highlight of their life. It certainly was the highlight of their athletic career. And they achieved the ultimate in such a difficult sport to win a championship that to say, okay, you didn't play in the NFL, but you would have gone and worked on Wall Street or become a lawyer or whatever, would you give it up for that? I don't think there's a lot of guys that would. I could be wrong about that. I didn't get a lot. Of, I asked that question just about everybody. I didn't get a lot of guys who said, no, I wouldn't want anything to do with you know playing football, even with even knowing what they know now. And you know, one thing that comes through really clear in the book is what they know now is far more than they knew when they were playing. You know, specifically about concussions. I mean, it was barbaric back there back then, the way these players were treated. And I think it was just out of ignorance. Uh, the teams in the league just didn't know enough and didn't make an effort to find out more. So, um, and I think, you know, Pat, I, I want to just want to see if I can put this right. If today's players were going to school on what happened to players from yesterday and deciding not to play football, I think we would probably know that. So in other words, asking these guys whether they can go through it, would go through it again or not, and having them tell their experiences. Um, if they're not scaring off players today from going into football, would we really expect these guys to say that they would not do it if they could do it over again? 
you'd think that players, there'd be a lot of people today that wouldn't want to play football, but it, it, it hasn't shown up in the quality of the game at all. And you just don't really hear much about people in the participation rate being down or uh, parents not letting the kids play football. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but con- considering everything that's come out about, you know, the condition of some of these guys' life after football, you'd think it would have a little bit more of an impact on guys not wanting to play today. Our guest, NFL columnist, author, Gary Myers. Uh, Gary, let me let me leave you on this. Um, you know, you've, you've written a lot of the history of the NFL through your career. So the 86 Giants, where do they rank? Because, you, you know, you hear a lot about the 85 Bears, uh, similar mm-hmm. type team based on defense. You hear a lot about the 2000 Ravens, similar type team right. led by defense. Where do the 86 Giants rank? Well, I think, uh, and I've, I've given this some thought. I think the 84 Niners, the 85 Bears, and the 86 Giants might have been the three best teams of the Super Bowl era. Um, the 07 Patriots clearly would have been first if they had beaten the Giants, but they didn't win the championship, although I still believe that was Belichick's best team um, in New England. And then the 2000 Ravens just had a great defense, but th- their offense was just, you know, with Trent Dilfer was really bad. So I have a hard time you know, putting them in the top four, um, where, where they would be after four. I'm sure they'd be a top 10. I, I don't know. I really haven't figured out like five through 10. Um, but I, I think the top four teams, and if I was to just rank them, I, I would probably put the 85 bears first simply because I've never seen a team during all the years that I've covered this that so completely intimidated the opposition that they didn't want to go on the field. And I saw that with my own eyes when I was looking in Dallas by 1985. The Bears came into Texas Stadium and beat the Cowboys 44-0. And I think the Cowboys were done after about the first quarter. Um, they just didn't want to play anymore. Mm. And I, I've never seen – and I, I'm sure that wasn't the first time it happened that season. I've never seen a team take away the will – of the other team like the those 85 Bears did. And the 84-49ers, I thought that was their best team of their five championship teams. And the interesting thing is that was before Jerry Rice got there. Uh, I thought Joe Montana's team in 84 was the best of his 49er teams, and that was pre-Jerry Rice. Um, and again, obviously, the, the 07 uh, uh, Patriots were outstanding but, you know, they couldn't finish it off. So they cost themselves being known as the greatest team in NFL history. But the 86 Giants you have with the 84 Niners, 85 Bears in that type yeah, of Yeah, I put the 86 Giants, and you know, right on that level with the 84 Niners. But I, I think I would get, put the Bears first. You know what I would have liked to have seen? I would have liked to see the roster. I like to see those three teams in a round robin. With their rosters, I mean, obviously it could never have happened, but with the rosters they had in those years play each other. Now, the the Giants in 87, if you remember, played the Bears in the first game of the season in Chicago, and that was so that was the, 80, the last two Super Bowl champions. But the Giants of 87 were not the same as the Giants of 86. They had some natural attrition. And the Bears of 85 
the Bears of 87 certainly weren't the Bears of 85. Um, the Bears crushed the Giants in that game in 1987. But I, I do put a little bit of an asterisk next to that because everybody knew the players were going on strike after the second game. And I, I just... I just think that season was so different that anything that happened that year, I almost threw out the window. So I don't know how the 86 Giants roster would have done against the 85 Bears roster. It would have been very interesting to find out because the the Giants in 86 were a different team than the Giants in 85 were who got shut out by the Bears in the divisional round. And I'm not saying personnel-wise they were that much different. I'm just saying Uh confidence-wise – I think they know going, they knew going into 86 they were going to win it, and that's what they did. They certainly did. Again, the book, Once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football, Gary Myers. It's his sixth book. Comes out on Tuesday, Amazon, and uh, all the other spots. Gary, appreciate the time this afternoon. It was great going down memory lane, and good luck with the book. It's terrific. Thanks a lot, Pat, and I hope you know a bunch of listeners will come out to uh, bookends on Thursday and how often do you get a chance to meet a Super Bowl MVP? The great Phil Sims and Gary Myers, 6 p.m. bookends in Ridgewood, New Jersey on Thursday, signing copies of the book. Thanks a lot, Gary. Good luck. Take care, Pat. Thanks for having me on. All right. So uh, on the eve of the Giants and Jets starting the 2023 season, going down memory lane a little with the greatest team in Giants history, the greatest team in New York football history, probably, right? The 1986 Giants, 14-2. and two. Uh Super Bowl champions defeating the Denver Broncos uh, in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. All right, 1-800-919-3776. We open the phone lines back up after this. So we'll get you caught up on everything else. Look ahead to the NFL season. Uh, still waiting out this rain delay at Yankee Stadium. So all that on the table on 98.7 ESPN New York. This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. The fact that a lot of these players are not in very good physical condition today and through interviews going into some detail on the toll that it has taken on their bodies and on their lives. And you know, one thing that I didn't ask Gary about, but he was on, I think, about a week and a half ago with Dan Grassa and, and Don LaGreca on the K-Show. Uh, they spoke about the Bill Parcells part of it, where Parcells basically has, you know, a a fund of, you know, excess money that he has made throughout his career when one of the Giants from that team is in some financial trouble. Bill Parcells has fronted, I think, millions of dollars cumulatively to help out his former players that have been in need uh, throughout the years. Just taking a quick look, the last thing I asked Gary, where do the 86 Giants rank? And he said the 84 Niners, 85 Bears, 86 Giants are... In his mind, the three most dominant teams are the best three teams of the Super Bowl era. The 2007 Patriots were on their way to topping that list, except the Giants of Eli Manning in Super Bowl 42 put a stop to that. Just a quick glance, the 84-49ers, Bill Walsh head coach, Joe Montana quarterback, they went 15-1. and They won the divisional round against the Giants 21-10. to Conference championship, they beat the Bears 23 to nothing, and then they beat Dan Marino and the Dolphins 38 to 16 in the Super Bowl. The next year, the 85 Bears, Mike Ditka, the head coach, Jim McMahon, the quarterback, Buddy Ryan's defense, they went 15 and 1 also. They beat the Giants 21 to nothing in the divisional round. 
They beat the Rams 24-0 in the conference championship, and they beat the Patriots 46-10 in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 20. And then you had the Giants in 1986. They went 14-2, and they were, of course, coached by Parcells, Phil Simms, their quarterback, Lawrence Taylor. Giants won in the divisional round over the 49ers 49-3. They beat Washington 17-0 in the conference championship and then they beat the Broncos 39 to 20 in the Super Bowl. So, three it's amazing, three consecutive years Niners, Bears, Giants, all of them incredibly dominant beating up on each other during that time. Look, that was before NFL free agency. It's amazing that at the same exact time in the NFL, in the same conference, you could have three unbelievably dominant teams like that, all of them different. I mean, the Bears, probably the best defense of all time. The 49ers, one of the best offenses of all time. The Giants, a dominant defense and a pretty good offense as well. Maybe the Giants were the most well-rounded of those three teams. Maybe the 49ers were the most well-rounded of those three teams. It's an interesting debate. Who is the best team of the Super Bowl era? And where do the 1986 Giants rank? Because when you think about teams that won the Super Bowl that were defensive-minded, you hear all the time about the 85 Bears. You hear a lot about Ray Lewis's 2000 Ravens team. I think over time, people might not remember just how dominant the 1986 Giants were on their way to winning Super Bowl XXI. So where do they rank, and did we forget anyone? It's an interesting question. 1-800-919-3776. Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show. The Yankees on this Saturday afternoon. The NFL regular season begins in earnest tomorrow. Giants tomorrow night against the Dallas Cowboys. And then the Jets on Monday night. You can hear it right here against the Buffalo Bills. Our coverage begins Monday at 6.15 on ESPN New York. Let's go back to the phones. Bobby in Belmore. What's up, Bobby? Yeah, hi, how are you? Uh, he left out, Gary should know better, he left out a couple of teams from the 70s. I mean, the undefeated Dolphins and the 78 Steelers. I mean, 78 Steelers here for their defense was Hall of Famers. You know, they have for Pro Bowlers. And they had Brasher, Swan, and Storff. And in those days, um, there were, it wasn't like a lot of passing, but those two made so many clutch plays in the playoffs and Super Bowls. I mean, I rank them both right. Swan and Storff behind Rice as greatest clutch receivers of all time. But Franco Harris and a hell of a defense. I think they led the league in defense and offense that year, and they were 14-2. and two. And, you know, they blew out teams in the playoffs. The Cowboys made it close at the end, but they – but uh, under Super Bowl, but um, and also the eighty nine forty nine ers. I know the eighty four forty nine ers may have been better, but um, that forty nine er team, if you look it up, with Rice and that Taylor and that explosive offense, you know, um, you got to put them those three teams with the three teams that he mentioned. It's very close. I put the Bears number one, but because but you know, but the other the other teams, the teams that I just mentioned, are, are not much far behind. Yeah, you look at, and thanks for the call, Bobby, the 78 Steelers, like you said, 14-2. and They beat the Broncos in the divisional round 33-10. to Conference championship, they beat the Oilers 34-5. to And then they beat the Cowboys in the Super Bowl 35-31. to The 89 49ers. Now, Gary said he, he kind of ranked all the 49ers teams and says he felt that the 84 
49ers were the best of them, but the 89 49ers were 14 and 2. They weren't coached by um by Bill Walsh. That was the one that was coached by George Seifert the year after Bill Walsh had left. But the 89 Niners, they were unbelievably dominant in that Super Bowl when they beat the Broncos 55 to 10. Um, 14 and 2 during the season, beat the Vikings 41 13, beat the Rams in the conference championship 30 to 3. And then that 55 to 10 win over the Broncos. That to me, look, all these teams have sterling records, right? The 86 Giants, the 89 49ers, the 78 Steelers, they were all 14 and 2. The Bears of 85, the 49ers of 84 were 15 and 1. What I look at is the playoffs because that's when, you know, you're not beating up on any weaklings. That is when you're playing against the top teams in the league that year. And the 89 49ers certainly fit that bill in terms of dominance. 41 13, 30 3, and then 55 10 in the Super Bowl. The 86 Giants, they do. They beat the Niners 49 3, and then they shut out Washington 17 0, and they beat the Broncos 39 20. Dominant. The most dominant playoff run, though, was the Bears in 85. And I think that's why a lot of people elevate them to the top of this list. They shut out, they, they got to the Super Bowl without allowing a point in the playoffs. They beat the Giants and they beat the Rams by a combined 45 to nothing. And then they beat the Patriots 46 to 10. And I know score-wise, that wasn't the biggest margin of victory in Super Bowl history. I think it was 55 to 10, uh, the one that we just mentioned, the Niners over the Broncos. But I just remember 46-10, to 10, Bears over the Patriots, in my mind, still seems like the most lopsided Super Bowl ever. And there have been a few. Fortunately, we don't have them that often anymore. But the Niners over the Broncos was certainly one. The one that was at MetLife Stadium in 2014, 43-8, the Seahawks over the Broncos was one of the most lopsided ones. But when you look at, you got to look at more than the record. And, and, and for me, I also like to look at well-rounded teams. Not that the Bears had the best defense, but did they have a great offense? Then you could counter to me, did they need to have a great offense? The problem I have with the Bears is they never won it again. They never won it again. They never got back again. And it's funny, from that time in history, because we talked about the 86 Mets in passing before, they're another example of that time where it was a team that was unbelievably dominant, but they were so dominant only for a year, and then they never won again. You know, the 1983 76ers, faux, 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 Moses Malone. It was actually faux, faux, five, but that was one of the best teams in NBA history, but they never won again, and I don't think they ever got back to the finals again, that team. So it's hard for me. I, I understand we're talking about a single year, a single season, but it's hard for me to say this team was the best team ever when there was it wasn't sustained. You know, at least the 86 Giants, 87 was the strike year. Uh, 89 was the Flipper Anderson year where they thought they were going back to the Super Bowl and they lost in the playoffs to the Rams. And then 1990, they won the Super Bowl again. So that 86 Giants team contended the next three years. One of them was a strike year, so you throw that one out. They contended the next two years, and then they won the Super Bowl again. That's dominance. Let's go to Matt in New Jersey. Hey, Matt. Hey, how you doing? You kind of stole a little bit of the thunder that I wanted to talk about, but um, I was just po I was thinking about those matchups, and I remember the uh, you know when the Giants played the the Bears in that '85 um, season, 
and they lost 21 to nothing. And then, of course, we know that, you know, Giants made it back the next year and won the championship. But I always wondered what would have happened if we had, you know, gotten that matchup with the 85 Bears versus the 86 Giants. And I just wanted to pose a question hypothetically. Who, who do you think would have won that matchup? I mean, it's, it's, it's so tough because the Bears' defense was so dominant. I mean, it was the greatest defense of all time. The Giants' offense in 86 was better than the Bears' offense of 85. The Giants had Phil Simms. Right. The Bears' quarterback was Jim McMahon. And the Giants, all right, so you want to give the Bears the advantage on defense? Well, the Giants had the greatest defensive player of all time on their team. Exactly. I didn't exactly. give you. I didn't give you an answer though, Matt. <laughs> yeah, that just it just you know we got cheated out in one of those matchups because I think the Bears lost in the I think they lost in the divisional round that year, so we didn't get a chance to see them. They uh, did make the playoffs. That would have yeah, been right? the test the next year, Matt. And thanks for the call. So the Bears trying to defend their Super Bowl championship. The next year they go fourteen and two, and in the divisional round. They lost 27-13 to Washington. It was a huge, huge win for Washington. But that would have been the test right there. I know they weren't the 85 Bears, but the 86 Bears, record-wise, were almost as good as the 85 Bears. The core of that team was still intact. They were still good enough to go 14-2. and They still had Mike Ditka as their head coach. Buddy Ryan was no longer their defensive coordinator after what he had done in 1985. He was coaching the Philadelphia Eagles as their head coach. All right, so that was the other big difference. But then they got to that was the difference between the 85 Bears and the 86 Bears. 85 Bears didn't give up any points in the playoffs. 86 Bears gave up 27 points to Washington. And we never got the Giants Bears NFC Championship game. That would have been unbelievable. More discussion on this on ESPN New York.